the, the book of 1 John was written by the Apostle John, uh, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Early in life, John was nicknamed, along with his brother James, one of the sons of thunder. Um, but because of the transforming power of Jesus, later in John's life, he was known as the Apostle Love uh, because he consistently wrote and spoke about God's love and tried to live out God's love. It's believed that John was the youngest among the 12 disciples and was also the one who lived the longest, uh, being the only one of the 12 who did not die a martyr's death, but instead died of natural causes. Now, it's not to say that John wasn't persecuted. Uh, there's other stories about him uh, being thrown in a cauldron of boiling oil and surviving. Uh, so it's not to say that he didn't suffer for Christ, but uh, he is one of the, the, the only that we know of of the 12 that did not die a martyr's death. John was uh, one of the inner circle of Jesus' 12, where he, along with James and Peter, were invited to special moments alone with Jesus. Uh, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, uh, when he, Jesus went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, these were moments that only John, James, and Peter uh, experienced. John was the only one of the twelve who remained to stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. Uh, only male disciple. Uh, some say that John was Jesus' closest friend on earth because of how he was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now at the time of, of writing the letter we know today as 1 John, John had recently been released or had escaped from banishment on the island of Patmos and was ministering to the churches in the area of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And uh, he was doing this during the last years of his life, uh, somewhere nearing 100 A.D. And he addressed the letter to believers. And he wrote it to give believers assurance of their salvation and to also expose false teachers. You see, around this time, there was a really dangerous heresy that was uh, coming out. It was called Gnosticism. And uh, it's still around today. Uh, You can still find uh, people writing popular books about it. And it was just emerging at this time, claiming that Jesus did not come in the flesh, but only came in the Spirit. It claimed that all matter was evil. Your flesh would be included in that matter as being evil. And that breaking God's law had no consequences. So from the very beginning of of John's letter, you see John affirming the reality of Jesus coming in the flesh. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. And I think of Thomas at that moment and Jesus saying, you know, touch my side, see the holes in my hand, touch it, feel it. As they sat around and they talked with him and he ate, said, hey, look, I'm not a ghost. Watch me eat. Um, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. So in the following chapters of 1 John, John explains the two things that most people have trouble 
keeping straight love and God. John shows how love and God are intricately related and cannot be separated. Uh, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He said, if we want to deal with God the right way, we have to learn to love the right way. If we want to love the right way, we have to deal with God the right way. John, by the Spirit, writes authoritatively as one who understands the fullness of God and the fullness of love. Over nine times throughout the letter in each of the, the chapters, you can see where he speaks as an elder or a caring parent calling his listeners dear children. And in this letter, the Apostle John writes simply and in contrast as if he were using some kind of simple binary language of computers, you know, all zeros and ones. It, he breaks it down into either or choices. And as the Spirit guides John to write assurance to believers and expose false, false teachers, his writing comes out in black and white categories, like the choice is light or darkness, truth or deception. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 10. Keeping God's commands or not keeping God's commands. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. A new commandment or the old commandment. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. We love God or we love the world. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It's either the Christ or the Antichrist. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 22. It's either truth or error. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It's either being a child of God or a child of the devil. Chapter 3, verse 10. It's either righteousness or lawlessness. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. It's either life or death. It's either love or hate. It's either spirits confessing Christ or spirits not confessing Christ. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It's either we are of God or we are not of God. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It's either love or it's fear. John breaks it down real simply. Real black and white. But he sums it up in a way that's, that's quite different. And it's in a way that I, I really believe that this generation understands and listens and hears. Martin Luther wrote that in John's Gospel, he was compelled to promulgate faith. But that here in the letter of 1 John... He's compelled, <coughs> excuse me, and I'm quoting Martin Luther, to oppose those who boast of faith without works. And he does this not by harping on the law as James does, but by stimulating us to love even as God has loved us. Uh, again, that's, that's Luther saying it, that's not me. So I, I don't know if I would be hard on James for harping on the law. But um, so how does this letter bring assurance to believers. Well, in the first chapter, we're shown that the Christian life, the Christian life as a fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the following chapters, there are described tests of fellowship. The assurance for believers comes from testing yourself against these standards to know that you are within this divine fellowship and to not be deceived by those false teachers who style themselves as having some sort of secret or special, special knowledge from God, but actually know nothing of this divine fellowship. 
But before I share with you some uh, in, the, in the following weeks, and, and Jason shares with you some of these uh, tests, some of these uh, black or white choices about assurance of being in the fellowship with God, it's my privilege to share with you today what is this divine fellowship and how you have been invited to be a part of this divine fellowship. And it is a wonderful thing. And I do believe it. It's, this is why John says we write this to make your joy complete. And I believe this is, this is stuff that brings us joy. and something for us to hang on to. So take a look again at this verse that introduces this fellowship and is the basis for the rest of this letter. It says, We proclaim to you that we have seen what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. See, at the center of the universe is a relationship. That is probably the most fundamental truth I know. At the center of the universe is a community. And it is out of that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. And it's for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. And it turns out that there is a threefoldness to that relationship. It turns out that the community is a trinity. The center of reality is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Bible, you're not going to find the word trinity. Yet we, we sing hymns. God in three persons, blessed trinity. Boy, start that too low. We, we in churches of the Christian faith, we, we quote different creeds like the Father uncreated and eternal, the Son uncreated and eternal, the Holy Spirit uncreated and eternal. Sometimes people scratch their heads at, well, how, if, if the word Trinity is, is not in the Bible, then where did that come from? Why, do, why is this so central to the Christian faith? Uh, even smart folks kind of get confused by it. Thomas Jefferson was frustrated by the idea of the Trinity. And in his frustration, he, he said he wanted to do away with the language of the Trinity, which he said masked the view of the simple structure of Jesus. But the truth is, if, even if you followed Thomas Jefferson's advice and you focus just on Jesus, you're going to find yourself again grappling with theology that puts you back at the foot of the Trinity. You won't be able to get away from it. When you go back to the simple words of Jesus, we hear Him speaking of a living God who in some way exists in some sort of threefoldness. He says, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. He says that when the Counselor comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about Me. He begins talking about Father and then Himself and the Spirit. The Lord, who is one, is in some way an eternal community. The disciples, who were Jews, saw Jesus and they worshipped Him. You know what's startling about that? One, they were those who knew Jesus best. They walked with Him day in and day out. But then also, Jews were strict monotheists. The Lord our God is one. That was their motto. That was part of the creed of Jews. But yet they worshipped Him. Their worship 
was based upon who Jesus revealed God to be. For us here today, it seems that you and I, we, we cannot say all that is contained for us in the word God until we have said Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You go out among other people and they'll say God and you're not sure what they mean when they say God. You kind of scratch your head. But for us, we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then, yeah, that's what I mean when I say God. You see, the Trinity isn't human thoughts about God. It's God's thoughts about God. The Trinity is the challenge of articulating who the one God is after Christmas and after Pentecost. After the coming of the Son and after the coming of the Spirit. You see, the church didn't formulate the doctrine of the Trinity to resolve the mystery of God's self-revelation, but rather to preserve the mystery. And I, I use the word mystery unabashedly and unashamedly because it is a mystery. And it doesn't mean that a mystery doesn't mean that it's absurdity. And it doesn't mean that we turn off our minds and stop trying to think about it. But it doesn't mean that, it does mean that we may not be able to pull together everything to explain it fully in human words and human terms. But what does uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity preserve? What does it preserve? It preserves, one, that there is one God and only one. Two, that this God subsists eternally in three distinct persons. And the third thing, the three persons are equally divine and in essence and in attributes. The trick is, is, is holding these truths simultaneously. That's the problem. Most heresies, most false teachings results from affirming just two of those truths while denying or ignoring the third truth. This is a diagram that was put together by a, by a theologian to kind of help explain this. And when looking at this, let the circle represent the mystery of the Trinitarian nature of God. And you remain in that circle as long as you hold on to all three sides of the triangle. But if you only hold on to two sides, you'll slide into the corner where you fall out of the circle, out of an unbiblical view of God, a view that does not square with what God has revealed about Himself. You see, in one corner, if you only hold on to equality between the three persons and hold on to just the oneness of God, you'll slide into modalism. Modalism is a heresy that was first associated with a man named Sibelius who affirmed Jesus is fully God, but that Jesus was only a certain manifestation of the one God. He, he was in a mode of appearing, as if God showed up with a mask in the Old Testament and He was the Father. And then he took off the mask and then he put on a mask in the New Testament days as the son. And then in the era of the church, he, he took off that mask and then put on a mask of the Holy Spirit. That would be what modalism is. And uh, Sibelius held on to one God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being equally divine, but he let go of three distinct persons, saying God was not eternally God in three persons. He said that God showed up in these different modes. So that is not trinity. That is modalism. Subordination is the other area that you slide into. You slide out of the trinity when you hold on to just one God and three persons. Subordination is, is saying that you affirm there is one God and three distinct persons, but deny that the three persons are equally divine. 
And this heresy was first associated with a man named Arius. Some of you heard about Arian heresy, who denied Jesus was fully God. Arius instead said Jesus was created by God and was famous for saying, there was a time when the sun was not. The problem with saying that is if you say that the sun was not at a certain time, then the father was not a father. That creates a problem. So that is subordination. Tritheism is what happens when you affirm God exists in three distinct persons, equally divine, but don't hold on to the fact that He is one God. Although there was never an official status or someone who represented that thought, a lot of popular teaching on the Trinity today comes out looking to outsiders like there are three gods instead of one. Now there's another diagram I want to show you. And sometimes you'll find this in older churches. You'll find it in stained glass windows. Um, and this was developed a long time ago. It describes how three persons, the three persons of God, are not parts of God, nor are they mere attributes of God. They're not distinctions of God's being, but they are distinctions in God's being. The three persons subsist in one divine essence. They do not coexist alongside one another. You see, I coexist with my wife, Sherry, and our kids. But I subsist as husband, father, a brother, a son, and pastor. The three persons of the Trinity don't exist alongside one another, but subsist in interrelatedness. The Father is the first person in the Trinity. Not because He is before the second and third in time, but because He is the source of the distinction we call Son or Spirit. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and Son. Now I know that we usually don't say words like begat and begotten anymore. What does that mean? Well, when uh, what God begets is God. The same way in that a human begets human babies. In the same way that a, a bird begets uh, an egg which turns into a bird. That's different from making or creating. And, and like a bird makes a nest, but the nest isn't the bird or a bird. So the sun is eternally begotten. It's not made or created. The Father and, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and Son. The same thing, what proceeds from God is God. It's not something different. It's not something that's made by Him or created by Him. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the bond of love between the Father and Son is embodied in the Spirit. And they exist in this fellowship eternally. The living God is not a solitary God nor an isolated God. He is infinitely content. He didn't need us. He didn't mean to make us because He was lonely. From all eternity, the living God has lived in relationship and lived as relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what does all this mean for us who have become Christ followers? So what? Is what I'm asking. So what? What does this divine fellowship mean for us? Well, first of all, there is an awesome wonder that God, who was infinitely 
pleased as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit opened, opened Himself up to us. He opened Himself up to us that He made Himself accessible to us and He has given us entry into the inner fellowship of His life. The love shared among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot be contained. And they have expanded the circle to include us within the circle, this divine fellowship. The Son became one of us to redeem us and free us so that we could be adopted into the family at the center of the universe as real sons and daughters. As real sons and daughters, we, like the eternal Son, get filled with the Holy Spirit who moves, moves us like the Son to cry out, Abba, Father. Second of all, we can know that when relationships go sour, all of life goes sour. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And that's not a mistake. The our or us. It's there in black and white. You can look it up in Genesis. God then says in the garden, it is not good for the man to be alone. Why? Because Adam alone is not Adam in the image of God. Adam does not reflect who God is until Adam shares life with Eve. We need relationship in order to be fully human. It's because we are created in the image of the Trinity that loneliness is so crushing, that broken relationships are so debilitating, and lack and loss of relationship just violates our essential nature. That is why Jesus emphasized righteousness so much. Righteousness simply means right relationship. He came to reconcile us to the Father, to each other, and to ourselves. The third thing the divine fellowship means for us is balance. The Christian life is grounded and shaped by the Trinity like a three-legged stool. Knock out one leg and the stool wobbles and falls. A lot of believers are Unitarian in practice, or maybe Binitarian, and they just live off balance. The God who claimed us for Himself is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not just Father, not just Son, not just Holy Spirit. God is God for us, Father. God is God with us, Son. God is God in us, Spirit. Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Being a Christ follower means entering into the full reality of God's name and embracing His full nature. The fourth consequence is fullness. The word baptized means to immerse to plunge in and beneath, to be inundated and drenched. To, baptize, to be baptized in the Trinitarian name is to be immersed not just in water, but in the very reality of the name. We are given the unspeakable privilege of entering into and participating in the Trinitarian community of love. When we say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are immersed into the love and life of God the Father. We are immersed into the grace and truth of God the Son, and we are immersed into the power and purity of God the Spirit. We have yet to know the fullness available in the triune God. But the good news is that God will not rest until we do. He wants us to experience Him in all His fullness. You see, in opening up this fellowship to us, He's made us co-lovers of Him. Co-lovers with Him of Himself. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. He has made us co-lovers with Him of Himself. The Father has drawn us near to Himself so that we can love 
and delight in the Son the way He does. The Son has drawn us near so that we can love the Father the way He does. The Spirit is totally taken up with the goodness and beauty of the Son and the Father. And He just doesn't draw near to us, but He falls upon us so that we can be ravaged with His love for the Son and the Father. In opening up this fellowship to us, He's also invited us into being co-lovers with Him of one another. As a Christ follower, I am commanded to love you as He loves you. And you're commanded to love me as He loves me. Sometimes it seems like we can't do that. It seems impossible. But here's what we need to see. I'm to love you not as much as He loves, but with Him as He loves. Meaning, I am to see Him loving you and join Him in His loving of you. Our relationship is always with each other in and with the Trinity. This is why death doesn't end our relationship. It doesn't take us out of the circle. It may change the way we share, but not the fact that we are still there in Him and with Him. This is what many people mean by the communion of the saints. We've been brought into this fellowship together with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A communion with God. And finally, God has invited us into being co-lovers with Him of the world. The closer you get to the heart of God, the closer you get to what is on God's heart. And on God's heart is the world. Our neighbors, empty, rebellious, broken people just like we once were, for whom the Son died. People for whom the Spirit broods over. Can you imagine and can you see God loving them and join Him in loving them? That's what He desires. We are called to be co-lovers with God of this world. You can kind of see how the great disciplines of following Christ, worship, community, and mission or as we put it around here, love, loyalty, and friendship cannot be separated because they're grounded in the Trinity. Co-lovers with God of God. That's worship or love or heart. Co-lovers with God of one another. It's the community. It's loyalty. It's the crown. Co-lovers with God of the world. It's our mission. It's extending His friendship it's the hands. What the gospel proclaims is the invitation into this fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what you are a part of if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior. And out of His glory and out of His goodness, God has given you promises to believe and trust so that you can participate in this divine fellowship. Now, as Christ followers, we're, we're kind of, you know, Christocentric. Why is that? Well, because the entrance into this fellowship was through Jesus the Son. You know, I, over the weekend at Belshire, there were some folks handing out these tracts. I think they're good. Called Steps to Peace with God. And, you know, maybe I would, if I wrote it, I would say steps to fellowship with God. Steps into this divine fellowship with God. And the steps are 
really simple. It's just recognizing that we're separated from God on our own. Without Christ, we're separated. That we're not a part of that fellowship in the beginning. That we can attempt to be in that fellowship by doing good works, being religious, having the right philosophy, having good morals, but that doesn't bridge the gap or make a way into the entrance into that fellowship. Goes on to say that, but there has been made an entrance. You know, they use the, the bridge illustration. Christ is that bridge. We think of John 5, 24, where Jesus said, if you hear my words and believe the one who sent me, you've crossed over from death to life. That's the entrance. The Bible says, for there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And then, of course, it says, there's a response. Do we, do we want that fellowship? Do we want to cross that bridge into that fellowship? Because we have a, a choice to do that, to respond. John 1.12, yet to all who received him, to those who received it, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The whole thing of being adopted. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth and believe Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, it's a matter of us saying yes, inviting, asking in prayer, responding to what he's already done. That's what's available to us. But it, for those of us who are already in that fellowship, I hope that it makes your joy complete to know that. Because it's good. So in knowing that, knowing the fellowship that we have with the Father and Son and Holy Spirit because of Christ and what He's done at the cross, I would like us to be able to worship together and to be able to, to bring our hearts before Him.